You are listening to The Stream UK and Alison and Partners podcast. Welcome to The Stream UK and Alison and Partners podcast. My name is Andrew Rogers and today I'm joined by an international panel of experts across Alison and Partners in the UK and Germany to talk all about localization why it matters, and how to do it properly in your marketing campaigns. On the line, we have Gina Mossi, Dan Whitney, Jess Doherty, and Sophie Koenigsberger from our London and Munich offices. Welcome to you all. During this podcast, I'll be asking the panel to dive deep into the topic and provide our recommendations from Alison and Partners on how to ensure your multinational campaigns truly deliver. But before we get into all that, I want to turn to Gina first and a relatively simple question, but an important one for us to answer. What is the difference between translation and true localization in campaigns? Yeah, so first off, I think it's important to say that although the two are different, um, they absolutely do both have their place. Most of the time when we talk about translation, we are talking about the, the straight transfer of words and phrases into another language, which in many instances works really, really well. So for example, looking when you're looking at a, a whole content piece, so something like a book or a brochure or a film or something like that, whereas marketing and PR campaigns don't tend to be one of those instances. And the main reason for that is that marketing PR campaigns rely so, so strongly on the context of the market that we are marketing to um, and also to the, the person that we're marketing to. So in order for them to be truly engaging and, and powerful, it, it relies so heavily on that. So what localization does is really take into account the the different cultural nuances um, of different countries. So looking at Europe specifically, not every country in Europe uh, behaves the same way uh, and responds to the same cues, much like, for example, every country in Asia doesn't doesn't respond the same way to the same cues. So just for some examples of of what's localization as opposed to to translation. um, So one of those is is looking at the tone of voice. So to take some examples from uh, some of the major European markets, uh, Germany, for example, which I'm sure Sophie will will delve into some insight for as well. But for their content, they they tend to like things to be quite specific. Um, They'd like to know exactly what they're going to get from from that content and and what the benefits for them are. Um, And they also like things quite data driven. Whereas France, by comparison, like more, their explanation is more full and, and more holistic. Whereas here in the UK, we have a tendency to not like being sold to quite as heavily. So we tend to like a bit of a bit of wit or, or some puns here and there and, and things like that. And also the, the general market context as well for, for that country. So that could be economic, that could be socioeconomic, political, uh, environmental but also just looking at the trends within that market as well. So so from a consumer's perspective, the adoption of trends is not going to be the same within each country. If it's taken off somewhere, it might not have in all other European countries or the rate of that adoption might be different. And similarly on the B2B side, especially if we look at our B2B tech clients, things like the rate of digital transformation can be something that that really needs its own content in different campaigns. And also it's that context that's that's really, really important when it comes to reviewing translations. So when things are translated straight into another language, with marketing and PR campaigns, obviously the wording needs to be be quite catchy and quite uh, succinct and concise. And so sometimes if something's originally written in English and then it gets translated over, um, some of those little kind of double meanings and and catchy phrases or or puns um, can be lost and, and translation teams they don't tend to be working on that campaign itself. Um, so that's why they don't have that context and, and that kind of thing can be missed. 
And when it comes to our clients and the kind of campaigns that we've run in the past, I mean, you mentioned there that we we already have clients we work with to localize materials across Europe and around the world um, and to make sure they're really hitting the mark. What kind of things do we find our clients need to localize? And then I guess also similarly for anyone listening in who is currently running a campaign that crosses borders, what sort of assets should they be really considering bringing into a proper localization program? Yeah, so a lot of the work that we are doing at the moment um, is based around uh, marketing materials. So things like uh, assets for paid campaigns, uh, email marketing, um, and that sort of things, which is is really tricky when it comes to localization, mainly because the word limits and character limits are so small. Um, so you do need to be really concise and, and catchy with that messaging. And that's where that does tend to, to run into uh, issues with translation is that, as I mentioned before, they don't quite have that context to to use that limited amount of words that they have to to maybe the best effect. And then on the PR side as well, it's it's things like news releases um, and other content pieces like Q and A's, interviews, blogs, um, other social content. And then something else that we've worked on quite a lot over the last few years is is actual product naming um, and brand naming as well. So that's that's particularly linking into that point where you've actually only got one word or two words to, to summarize the whole thing that your, your product or brand um, represents. So you have, it's even more important to um, understand the connotations of that one or two words um, in each of those markets to make sure that it's really doing that justice. Jess, I want to bring you in here to kind of drill down a bit more into why this is so important. People might be listening to this and thinking this actually sounds very complicated. It sounds like it could be potentially quite expensive. Maybe I could just skip that. I could just have uh, a European press release for Europe. Why is that a bad idea? Why is it important to localise properly? It's a terrible idea, Andrew. (laughs) If we look at language alone, um, in Europe, there are 24 official languages, but there's actually more than 200 languages spoken across the continent. It's diverse and rich cultures on top of that are what makes it a really exciting place, but also a challenging place to be a marketer, right? 78% of online shoppers are more likely to make a purchase on online stores that are localized. That means businesses that sell products and services in English to non-native English speakers have a better chance of converting the majority of online shoppers if their website is localized instead. In Sweden, which has one of the world's best non-native English speakers, over 80% of online shoppers prefer to make a purchase in their own language. So the statistics there really speak for themselves. And then when it comes to trust, we all know that's a vital part of long-term success for any brand, whether it's B2B or B2C. Uh, Translating and localizing content will help you build trust with your audience. 44% of internet users across the European Union when polled felt that they were missing out on important information when web pages and websites weren't translated in a language they understood. On top of this, more than 50% of all queries on Google are in languages other than English. Search engines have evolved dramatically over the last few years to accommodate linguistically diverse audiences who are responsible for over half of all queries that are performed in languages other than English. Adapting your product and marketing strategy to each of these new markets through localization will not only expand your customer base, but it's also going to help you drive growth and profitability. Okay, so I, as this naive marketing manager, has now been, I've now been convinced that this is the right thing to do. Um, but I do have my international campaign that I now need to set up a localization program for. How would you suggest that we get started on that journey? Sure. So the particularly tricky thing about creating a marketing plan for EMEA, which we all on the line totally understand, is the, the difference in 
local laws and cultures as well as local languages. It can be different between countries. It also can be really different between specific regions of those countries as well. So creating a uniform marketing campaign that has the same meaning in Germany as it does in South Africa or Spain is not an easy task um, to accomplish. From a technical perspective, you need to be aware of the copyright laws, the government regulation, market share and product fit, just to name a few things. Um, so what's really important is to invest, first of all, in really great research and to put in place strong partnerships that can help guide your outreach in your target regions. I would advise investing in teams that speak the language and know the local customs. They'll be familiar with local laws and they'll really have their finger on the pulse of what types of marketing campaigns have worked in the region and what's going to work for your brand best. Really get to know your customer. Social listening is your best friend here, as well as really investing in secondary research. It can be a really good way to quickly build up a baseline of knowledge of any key market. And then the third thing I'd advise is always taking a phased approach. You don't have to do everything at once. Investing in primary research to understand where the need for your product is and then following an agile methodology to plan out expansion into other regions as you go uh, is definitely a top tip. So far, it's really just been those of us in the London office contributing to this conversation on localization. And I know we've got some great experience uh, from the team on that. I'm very keen, Sophie, to get you involved in this conversation in our Munich office and kind of different approaches to localization over there. So I suppose, first of all, in your opinion, why is localization so important? And then following on from that, how can we then, as Alison and Partners, set up those effective localization programs using our teams that we have across the world? Yeah, so I can really just second what um, Gina and Jess have already said, that it's really important to have this very localized approach. Because if you say you want to do business in a specific region, but you can't even be bothered to get to know the market and to have a message that really um, speaks to the people there, why should your customers or your prospects be even be bothered to do business with you if you can't get it right. That's really something that I see as someone who is not a native English speaker, but has been bombarded with lots of, let's say, bad translations or maybe awkward or cringy translations. It's really people are tired of it and people want to be spoken to in a way that really hits what they think and how they talk and how they react to um, things in their region. So that's that's really important. And it doesn't mean that you have to change everything. You can still have your international messaging and um, you can orchestrate it over many countries, but you might have to just adapt that a little bit. And that's where we come in with our local teams because they know the market best and they know um, what will work in those markets and they also know how those people, your specific targets group, how they talk. Sometimes it's just, especially in the IT industry, um, you have so many English terms and sometimes you translate them and sometimes you don't. So that's really important just to know um, how should it be in German <laughs> and how what should be in English um, and left in English to be better um, understandable because sometimes it's just unintelligible 
if you translate something that's usually not translated. And that is also where you have, just have to give a little bit of trust to your local team and um, a little bit of freedom to let them work in the way that they think works best. So that's something that I also have um, made a lot of experiences that work best. If you give one overall message, but you let those teams, those regional teams work on their own to adapt it to their market and to their needs. And it's interesting that you mentioned there that example of there being sometimes there are terms that you should translate and some terms that actually it doesn't make sense to translate. They should be left as they are. I guess building on that, what is the worst that can happen if you haven't properly localized your campaign? Because in that case, it sounds like you get something that just, as I said, it doesn't make sense. It just sounds bizarre. What else can happen that's really bad for your campaign when you don't do this right? There are two things that can happen. The one thing is, and that's, that's first of all, you're always losing money if you don't localize effectively because your campaign won't be, won't be as effective and you're always kind of in the dark you don't know if it was really good or if it wasn't, or if it's not working, you don't really have an idea why it didn't work. So you will always lose if you don't have the insight of local people who can help you along with that. And it also, it makes you look a little bit lazy <laughs> so that it's, it's really um, not as effective if you don't localize and you will lose business opportunities or you will just lose money for example, if you put in a, put on an ad and it just doesn't work right. And the other thing is, of course, um, Gina already mentioned this, there are cultural differences between us and you could really go wrong there and have just very cultural insensitivities in your ad, which you really did not intend, but it just happened. And we have seen some, some very horrible <laughs> examples already but it also can be just in the very small things. I remember one time we had a client, um, they wanted to use their own localization technique for their press releases. And in the first paragraph, they went in and said, company XYZ, leader in industry, something, something. Leader is a very normal term to call yourself in English, but in German, if you translate, they translated it to Führer, which is, yes, a term you can use, but it's also the term Hitler was referred to. So uh, since then, no one ever uses this term in German because it has such bad connotations. Obviously, we would know that, okay, it's just a bad translation, but you can avoid problems like that. And it's not even that hard. I was going to say, my next question was going to be to ask you an example of where localization has gone horribly wrong. And I think you've already covered that off and I'm not sure anything's going to beat that now. But no, I mean, incredibly interesting to see that. I mean, Dan, turning to you with the next question here, I guess we've looked at kind of the dangers of what can happen when localization is done badly. But looking at the really more positive side of what the big benefits are of getting this right, can you give us an example of where localization has been done really well and how they managed to get that spot on? Well, I'm not really sure that anyone actually notices when localization is done well, because there's kind of an expectation that a brand is aware of local audiences and, and will create specific content for that country or region. But we know that's not always the case, as Sophie just highlighted. And, and there are many, many examples of when brands get this wrong. And indeed, this isn't a new problem. You know, this has been around as long as um, people have been advertising to different people in different countries. 
In the 1970s, uh, American Motors named a car in its midsize range as the Matador. Uh, this was supposed to conjure up images of courage and strength, but it was a little bit too aggressive for the Spanish consumers as it actually translates as killer, which is not really a name for a car that uh, I think anybody would want to drive. A few years ago, I was actually in China when Dolce and Cabana famously shared an ad on social showing a Chinese woman attempting to eat Italian food with chopsticks. The ad was really offensive to Chinese consumers who then threatened to boycott DNG, which was, you know, this a major market for them. And they had to go on the charm offensive in one of their biggest territories. So it really shows that when advertising your brand, you know, in different markets, you, you need to be culturally aware, um, both from a written and a visual perspective. A final example I want to share as a bit closer to home was uh, back in 2009. HSBC spent millions and millions of dollars on its Assume Nothing campaign. However, in many countries, this was translated as do nothing. So this had to be scrapped uh, for obvious reasons. And they spent tens of millions of dollars uh, changing the tagline to now famous world's private bank, um, which is much more friendly. So I think the outcome of all these examples really shows that, you know, you need to have local experts on the ground in the countries that you're looking to run campaigns in. You know, you've got to have the right translations, but also you need to be aware of them cultural sensitivities like we've been discussing today. And I think also a, a key theme that seems to be coming out across this as well is that it's not just localization once it gets to a press release or to social media assets. This needs to be right from the very beginning when it comes to working out what the product's going to be called, what your approach is going to be, even the name of the company. So I think it's it really does show that this is not just a tactic. It's something that needs to be considered the whole way through, um, through your business marketing communications campaign. Dan, I, I think... The worry, I guess, is that with tools like Google Translate, people think they can market in any language they want or that they can put their website in another language very easily using the automatic Google Translate tool. Again, I'm assuming the answer is going to be it's a disaster. But have these tools made things better or worse? And how cautious should people be of them? I think it's quite interesting because Google Translate, I think, has made advertisers a little bit lazy. I think it's great to give you a general gist of something, but, you know, it's far from perfect. And, you know, we have to remember that, you know, some languages, they've got significant regional differences that, that Google Translate will probably miss. So um, my view would be that Google Translate is a great tool if you're traveling. It's a great travel companion, um, but I think that's probably where it should stop to translate any creative that we're looking to put out there. I think, we've, you know, we've spoken about today, creative shouldn't just be translated, you know, it needs to be transcreated. You know, make, make sure that it's relevant for local markets, both from a language and cultural perspective. You know, sort of as Jess highlighted from experience, we know that, you know, click-through rates are consistently more high, higher um, when creative translated in local languages. And, you know, apps and tools are brilliant. You know, they're there to help our lives and make us more productive. But I think when it comes to translating and running international campaigns, I don't think any piece of software can replace a human to do that job. And, you know, that's great news for us and the creative industry. And finally, when it comes to us as Alison Partners, practically rolling this out for clients or prospects, how do we go from them approaching us saying they want uh, their campaign to be localized properly and to be run across markets to actually activating that in all the different markets that we operate in? 
Yeah, so we very much tailor that to the client needs. So some clients prefer to have um, everything run through their hub team where the client themselves, um, the client contact themselves is, is based. So in that case, we would uh, have our hub team and then we would work with specialists on the ground. So we would do all of that management um, from our side and, and work with the with our teams to work on content localization uh, and also activate media campaigns um, in those markets. But then some bigger clients um, might have people on the ground in those markets as well. So we can also pair those up with uh, the specialists in the ground there and they can contact each other directly. So it's re- it really just depends on, on, how, on how you're set up really and, and what it is that you, that you want to get from it. Jess, Dan, Gina, Sophie, thank you so much to all of you for joining us on the Stream UK today. As always, if you'd like to find out more about how we as an agency are helping brands activate international campaigns, please visit our website at allisonpr.co.uk. Finally, I'd like to remind you, as I always do, to subscribe to The Stream UK on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, so you never miss one of our episodes. And you can always get the latest episode right here at allisonpr.co.uk forward slash stream. Thanks for stopping by.